Um, just before I read the text, Darren, I wonder if you could put the, uh, the slide up on the screen for me, please. When you dive into a passage like this, it's always useful to kind of stand back and think about the context of, of, of this prayer. And what we're going to be looking at is, is, is Daniel's prayer uh, for his people. And, and I just wanted to set that in context. I've put a timeline up there. So it starts on the far left-hand side of the screen is, uh, is in 1010 BC was when King David started to reign in Jerusalem. Shortly after that, when Solomon took over the kingship in 966 BC, the temple was constructed in, uh, in, in Jerusalem and dedicated, uh, and you can read about that in, in 2 Samuel. Um, then in 930 BC, things started to go wrong uh, during Solomon's reign, and then afterwards, and then eventually in 930 BC, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two. We had the northern kingdom of Israel, and we had uh, the, the southern tribes of Judah, and those two became separate. And then as you read through the books of, uh, of, of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, what you see is a, a deterioration, a decay, and a decline of the, the nation and the kingdoms of Israel and, and Judah. And during that time, Mike's already referred to it this morning, but we have prophets that are given to God's people to warn them that if they keep going down the track that they're on, there'll be severe consequences as a result of that. And both Isaiah was sent to the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeremiah was sent to the tribes of, uh, in, in the southern kingdom in Judah. And then eventually what happened in 722 BC, which isn't on there, was that the northern kingdom of Israel was overtaken and overruled by the Assyrians. And then around about 606 BC, Jerusalem became sieged by King Nebuchadnezzar, and the first exiles were taken out of Jerusalem and Judah and taken to Babylon. And Daniel was a young man he was of 15 or 16 years of age, and he was one of the first exiles who was taken from Jerusalem into a foreign land ruled by a foreign king and who worshiped pagan gods. And that was in 606 BC. Another 20 years after that, and the temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed. Then in 539 BC, Daniel, right the whole way through from 605 BC to his death in 530 BC, Daniel remained in Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 5, you can read about the, the, the switch over from the Babylonian kingdom, the Babylonian empire, to the rise of the Persian empire when Darius the Mede comes in and conquers Babylon. This prayer that Daniel, that we're going to look at this morning in Daniel chapter 9, is prayed in the first year after the fall of the Babylonian Empire and the rise of the Persian Empire. And it looks forward to a promise that was made by the prophet Jeremiah, which we'll get to shortly, for the people of Israel to return ultimately to Jerusalem. God promised that they would go back to Jerusalem and he promised that his temple would be rebuilt and worship would be reestablished 
in Jerusalem. And, and that promise was fulfilled, first of all, in 536 BC, when the first exiles returned. You can read about that in, in Ezra. And then in 516 BC, the temple was finally rebuilt and worship was again reestablished in Jerusalem. The context of this prayer is in this first year when the, the Babylonian Empire has been defeated and the Persian Empire comes to prominence across the Middle Eastern world. And all through this time in exile, the people of Israel in exile are grieved by what God's judgment has resulted in in Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, and no more so than Daniel. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 19, and then we're going to look at this prayer. And, and what I want to focus on this morning is, you know, as I've reflected on, on the last several years, I think we're living in, in a time where we are seeing the collapse of Western civilization. Western civilization, whether you like it or not, or, or you know, whatever commentators might think, has actually been established on Christian principles. When the church, when the early church came out of Jerusalem, it talks and acts about the world being literally turned upside down. The Roman Empire couldn't survive in the face of the church. It collapsed. And we're living in a time where we are seeing a detachment of Western civilization and values from the, from the Christian principles upon which many of our laws have been, have been written. And there's been a rise, an almost overwhelming flood of secularism in our nation and in our Western civilization. And that secular, I've come to realize that that secularization is not a neutral thing, but it's a negative thing. It's actually anti-Christian in its outlook and its worldview. And I have found it disorientating. And, and as I've studied and I've gone back to the Old Testament in particular, I've been looking at First and Second Samuel, I've, I've tracked through First Kings, and I've, the last couple of months I've been spending in the book of Daniel, I've come to realize that we need to be praying as God's people in this generation for his kingdom to come, for the triumph of his kingdom. So I wanna take this prayer of Daniel and I want to look at what it says about how God's people are to respond to the kingdom of God and the restoration of that kingdom in his time, but apply it to our time. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So let me read Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by a descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. 
I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We haven't listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Amen. In Daniel 5, we, we read of King Belshazzar's feast, and that very night, the handwriting is on the wall. Daniel's asked to interpret the prophecy that by this time, Daniel is probably 81 years of age or something like that. And Daniel recognizes, you can see in verse, uh, in verse, uh, verse 2 of, of Daniel 9, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, 
must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel recognizes that that emergence of the Persian Empire and the defeat of the Babylonians is a signal that God is going to deliver on a promise that was made back in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 29 and verses 10 to 14, Jeremiah was a a contemporary of Daniel. Uh, Jeremiah remained in Judah while Daniel was in exile. And in in Jeremiah 29, we read of a letter that Jeremiah sent to the exiles in Babylon. And this is what it says in Jeremiah 29, verse 10 to 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Daniel consults the letters when he sees the Babylonian Empire eclipsed. And that provokes Daniel to pray this prayer. One of the things that that God does by his will and his grace is that he invites us to participate in the work of the building and the bringing of his kingdom. And he does that through our prayers. Daniel, rather than passively just accepting that God will act irrespective of what he does, we actually find here that Daniel is stirred up by the Spirit and and he is passionate and takes this prayer to God and seizes a hold of that promise. He's basically saying, God, the Babylonian Empire is over. You've promised within, that the 70 years is up. We're, we're now at year 68, 69. So please, Lord, deliver on your promise. That's what Daniel is doing in this prayer. And in Revelation 5 and, and Revelation 8, we're given a glimpse into heaven about how God sees our prayers. In Revelation 5, verse 8, it says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints are gathered in bowls before the throne of God in heaven. And later in Revelation 8, verses 1 to 5, we see how God takes those prayers and answers those prayers When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense. With the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel, Then the angel took the censer, that's the censer full of fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and an earthquake. Our prayers matter to God in heaven. An effective prayer is always based and grounded in God's word and his promises to 
to us, and we need to pray fervently and earnestly according to God's will. If you think about our context, and if you think forward to uh, 2023, what should we be praying for ourselves, for our church, for our city of Aberdeen, for our nation, for our world? Jesus left us in no doubt about what our priorities and prayer should be. We all know, uh, largely in this room probably, whether you've been at church a long time or just a short time, the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Make disciples of all nations. That is to be our overriding priority for our prayers, for our nation, for our city, for our church, for our world. Your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to pray for the increase of Christ's kingdom and the expansion of his reign and rule. And that's not for our glory, it's not for our sake, but it's that Christ's righteousness and glory might be on full display to the world and to the nations. question for myself that I've been asking is, have we abandoned our post? How fervently have my prayers been for your kingdom to come, for your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? All too often, our prayers, when we say the Lord's Prayer in particular, it can become mechanical and dispassionate. But is that how we're to pray? If you look at verse 3 in, in Daniel chapter 9, we see Daniel's attitude in prayer, the, the attitude that we should have in prayer. Daniel, in, in verse 3, says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel was a truly remarkable man. Taken out of Jerusalem and Judah when he was 15 or 16 and transplanted into, uh, into Babylon, trained up in the ways of the nobles of the, of the time. And at the time that he prays this prayer, he's now 81 years of age. By any earthly standard, Daniel has everything that he could ever imagine or want. He has risen to the highest levels of government and, you know, not just the government of a small nation, but the government of an empire that oversees and overrules vast waves of the, of the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern world. And Daniel has survived several Babylonian kings, and he's just survived the purging of the Babylonian empire by the Persian empire. And in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 3, probably around about the same time as this prayer was, was said, we read of Daniel, the plot against Daniel. In, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 6 verse 3 it says, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king, the new Persian king, planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Daniel knew what it was like to wield power and wealth. And in this political world, 
we read in, in chapter 6 of the officials becoming jealous of Daniel. They don't want Daniel, who has this excellent spirit, who they can see the mark of God on him. They don't want Daniel to take the highest, um, the highest power in the land, the prime minister of the land, if you like, under the king. And they conspire to prevent Daniel from praying to God. And they do that by setting a trap for him. They convince the king to send out an injunction to force people to only pray to the king and no other god, to put the state absolutely first as supreme. But Daniel is having none of that. Daniel isn't interested in holding on to his worldly status. And despite having everything to lose, Daniel continues to pray to the God of Israel. And he doesn't do that in secret. He goes to the top of his house, he opens the windows towards Jerusalem, and three times a day prays publicly to God. And as a result, he gets caught, he gets sentenced, he gets sentenced to death in a lion's den. And you can read about those events and his deliverance from that in Daniel 6. It's not clear from the book of Daniel when this prayer in in chapter 9 and and those events around the lion's den are are happening, but it could be that Daniel was praying this very prayer from those open windows as he looked towards Jerusalem ahead of the time when he was thrown in the the lion's den. In verse 3, we see his attitude. It's not not to, to protect himself and to protect his own position of power, Daniel is much more concerned about a much higher priority that he has. Daniel's highest concern and priority in life is for the glory of God and for it to be displayed to all the nations. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where God chose to provide his people with his presence. In 2 Samuel 8, when when Solomon and the the nation of Israel gather together to dedicate the temple, we can read there of God's glory filling the temple like a cloud, a blanket of cloud. So intense and so heavy was that weight of God's presence that the priests couldn't stand to minister. The destruction of the temple in 586 BC signified God's, God's rejection of his people and the nation's. The temple, the place where God was present with his people, was destroyed. God's presence was removed from the nation, and the nation were removed from their homeland and dispersed. It's the equivalent today of God deciding to remove the church from the world. Just imagine the state that the world would end up in. It's bad enough as it is. But if God took his people out, there would be no salt to stem the rot. There would be no light to display God's glory and point to the truth and the wonders plan of God's salvation. That's why Daniel is so desperate for God's glory to be restored on earth through his visible presence in the temple. And we can see that desperation in his humility. Humility before God is an absolute essential ingredient to our prayers. Daniel knew what it was like to wield power and authority. 
But Daniel knew where the ultimate source and the ultimate power in the universe was actually residing. So he humbly approaches God. He humbly approaches his creator. He humbly approaches the king above all kings. And as an outward sign of the, of the humility in his heart, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. The rags and the dirt signify mourning, a lament. They signify shame and they signify repentance. And not only do we find Daniel being humble in his prayers, but he's earnest. Daniel is so committed to prayer that he goes without food, he fasts. He's prepared to do without nourishment for his body because he recognizes how serious the situation is. The temple's destroyed, lying in ruins. God has promised to deliver his people back to their homeland and to rebuild the temple. And he's utterly desperate for that to happen. Because for 70 years, the people have been cut off from God. There's been no atoning sacrifices made in the temple. There is no worship. Daniel earnestly seeks God in prayer. And this is the very same attitude that we see with Jesus in Gethsemane. Earnestly seeking God. These weren't mechanical prayers devoid of passion. The future destiny of the whole of mankind hangs in the balance. And it all rests on God's answer to this prayer. What about our current situation? Are you grieved by the decline of the church in Scotland and the Western world more broadly? If you just think about Aberdeen, Aberdeen is reputed to be the most secular city in Scotland with more than 48% of people in the population saying that they're not religious. And only 4% of the population who would claim to be part of an evangelical church. Just as one marker of the decline in Scotland, just consider what has happened to the Church of Scotland, the National Church. In the last 60 years, it's departed from the authority of the Bible to govern its affairs. The adoption of so-called progressive ideologies has destroyed the Church of Scotland. In 2022, there are now less than 300,000 members of that church across the nation. In the 1960s, there were 1.3 million members. It's lost a million members in the last 60 years, and it's on a linear decline. The Church of Scotland will be extinct within 20 years if the decline continues at the current rate. If you look at the skyline of our city, Aberdeen, We see all of these impressive spires, but how many still point heavenwards to the glory of God? So many of these beautiful granite buildings no longer provide a a place of worship for God's people, for faithful followers of Jesus, filled by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit on a Sunday morning. Many instead are now overflowing with the worship of other gods on a Saturday night, fueled by alcohol and drugs and others that do remain echo the declaration of a hollowed out false gospel on a sunny morning. 
we have to face up to the reality of the decline of the church in our nation and in our city. Because without the church in the nation, there is no display of God's glory. Daniel, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, is grieved by his desolation. Daniel turns his face heavenwards towards God because there is no one else to turn to. There is no one else who has the power and authority to do something about the awful situation that the nation of Judah and Israel are in. So we've looked at the basis for the prayer on God's promise, on his word. We've looked at our attitude in terms of our earnestness and our humility. Next, we turn to what are we to pray for? This prayer has two main themes, two main elements in the prayer. One is confession and the other is plea or requests. The vast majority of the prayer is taken up with confession and Daniel confesses both the sins of the people but also the righteousness of God. And it's only after he makes these confessions that we see Daniel making requests of God. He pleads for mercy. If we look at confession of sins, first of all, for decades before the final conquest, as we looked at on the timeline, God repeatedly warned his people about the inevitable outcome if they persisted in their decadent ways. God continually sent prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah who pointed out the people's sin and called them to repentance. You know, in Isaiah, you can read these words in, in chapter five, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. He, that is God, will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily, they come. But the people continually ignored the prophets. Daniel is keenly aware of why Jerusalem and the temple are lying in ruins. It's a direct consequence of the people's stubborn persistence in their sin and their refusal to repent. Repeatedly through verses four to 15 in Daniel 9, Daniel confesses the sins of the people. And he repeatedly points out that it's not that the sins weren't just the the rulers of the nation, but it's right from the very top of society to the very bottom of society. In verse six, he says, "We we have not listened to your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. But Daniel isn't pointing the finger of blame at others. If you look at the language that Daniel uses, repeatedly he talks about, we are... Daniel includes himself among those who sinned. He takes on a priestly role in interceding for the nation. And the nature of these sins that Daniel confesses reveal a wholesale disregard for God and his law. This chosen nation of Israel, who once enjoyed God's favor and blessing, have fallen away from their first love. Like we read in verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice. Their hearts are so hardened against God, they refuse to listen to his word through the prophets. 
they stubbornly refused to obey God's law given to Moses. Not only do they refuse to obey God's law, but they openly rebel and commit treason against God. They take God's law and they flip it completely on its head. What God means for good, they call evil, and what is evil, they call good. And like Daniel, we find ourselves living in a society which takes what is good and calls it evil and takes what is evil and calls it good. The killing of unborn children in the womb to exercise a woman's right to choose. The mutilation of children's bodies with puberty blockers and invasive surgery to erase the sex that they were born with. Drag queens in our schools teaching kids lessons. This is what happens when God abandons a nation. A stubborn refusal to listen to God's voice. When we turn our backs on God, God gives us up to the debasement of our minds to do what ought not to be done. In Romans 1, verses 21 to 32, I'm not going to read them, but Paul points to this when he writes to the Romans, that there's a complete flipping of good for evil and evil for good. And not only is it enough for people to do that, but people are egged on and then you find them inventing forms of evil. That's the world that we live in. Should we be surprised to see the decay and collapse of Western civilization? What sins do we need to confess? What sins do we need to bring before God as his people in our day and confess and intercede for our nation? That was confession of sin. The other part of the confession in stark contrast to the sin and the putrid nature of the, of the people's sin and the, and the shame and the open shame that Daniel talks about the second confession, in stark contrast to that, is the blazing glory of God's righteousness. Verse 4, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who, keep covenant, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Verse 9, to, our Lord, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. When we pray, we, we need to remind ourselves of who God is by declaring his righteousness. If you read through Romans 1, and if you look at uh, what happened in the nation of Israel, you may think that God is being unfair or unjust. <clears throat> because righteousness demands punishment for sin. God is holy and he alone is able to set the standards for mankind to live by. And when those standards aren't met, that's a personal affront to the holy God, to his holy nature. If a child was to suffer some form of abuse at the, at the hands of an adult, and that adult went to court and was let off with the crime, we would be affronted by that because justice hasn't been served. 
But God sees the sin, and there has to be a reckoning for every sin. Because it's God's righteousness that demands justice. Otherwise, he wouldn't be true to his nature. In verses 11 to 14, Daniel refers to the consequences God promised if if the people depart from the law of Moses. It says, And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. God is also a merciful God, and God is righteous in his forgiveness. God isn't able to just turn a blind eye to sin and pretend it never happened. Either a person must pay the penalty for his his own sin, or somebody else must pay the penalty for him. And God had to find a resolution to reconcile his righteousness and his mercy. Someone had to be found who would pay the price for sin, who would take punishment on behalf of those whom God forgives. Who would be gracious enough to do that? God himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 3, verses 21 to 26, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So God's righteousness is on display in Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. It says, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us in our sin and our decay, but he's provided a way out in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, we get to Daniel's plea for God's mercy. Having confessed the sins of of the nation, having confessed the righteousness of God. In verses 16 to 18, he now pleads for God's mercy. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations 
and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Daniel throws himself on God's mercy. Here we see Daniel's overriding priority and concern is not for his own name or reputation, but for God's. The petition he makes is for God to forgive his people and restore the kingdom of Israel. And he asks this not for the sake of the reputation of Israel, but solely for God's glory. Daniel is praying that God would maintain the covenant that he made with Abraham that was renewed with Moses and David for God to reveal his glory once again through the nation of Israel. Daniel knows that there are no other grounds for appeal. God will only act to bring about his glory on the basis of his righteousness and his steadfast love. By the time we get to verse 19, Daniel's prayer reaches a crescendo. And this is the core of the prayer. If you could summarize the whole prayer, it's this. The short phrase, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. You can get a sense of the urgency in Daniel's prayer with the boldness of these clipped statements. These pleas are short and to the point. Hear, forgive, pay attention, act, don't delay. Daniel can pray this way because they're firmly rooted in a heart and in a mind which is sincerely consumed with a passion for God's glory. John Stott, commenting on the Lord's Prayer, observed this. It is comparatively easy to repeat the words of the Lord's Prayer like a parrot. To pray them with sincerity, however, has revolutionary implications, for it expresses the priorities of a Christian. We are constantly under pressure to conform to the self-centeredness of secular culture. When that happens, we become concerned about our own little name, about our own little empire, and about our own silly little will. But in the Christian counterculture, our top priority concern is not our name, kingdom, and will, but God's. Whether we can pray these petitions with integrity is a searching test of the reality and depth of our Christian confession. The sincerity and the integrity of Daniel's prayer was heard by God, and God provoked and provided an immediate response. In verses 20 to 24, you can read about God sending the angel Gabriel to minister to Daniel. Verse 23, it says, at the beginning of your plea for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Daniel's, our Father in heaven, is listening intently to the prayers of his people, and he swiftly responds to our pleas for mercy. And not only was there an immediate answer to Daniel's prayer in the, in the provision of Gabriel, and the visit of Gabriel, but within two years, the Lord stirred up the heart of King Cyrus, the Persian king, the pagan king, to issue a royal decree for the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, and for all of the exiles who wished to return to Jerusalem to freely go their way and reestablish a nation in God's name for his people in Israel. In 536 BC, 
the first of those exiles returned, two years after Daniel prayed this prayer. And within 20 years after that, the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem and worship resumed again. And the story didn't end there because God still declares his glory from a wooden cross outside those city walls in Jerusalem. And after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, God breathed out his spirit to all the believers who were gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. There's no longer a need for a physical temple, a physical building to manifest God's presence and glory. The church of Christ was born and is alive today, and it continues to this day to display God's glory to the world. Jesus has promised to build his church. Jesus has promised to expand his kingdom before he returns to bring all things to an end. And like Daniel, we're to pray, we're called to pray for the display of God's glory to the nations in our day to the city of Aberdeen in our day, to the, to the nation of Scotland in our day. We're called to pray for the increase of his kingdom and for the increase of his rule in the world until he comes again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can pray those words with confidence because God has promised that Christ will return. God has promised that he will build his church. So will you join with me and pray the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and deliver us from evil and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.